Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. second part of uh, salvation. So we're going to take a look at some of the things that we didn't get around to talking about last week. And as you see, everything that we're talking about with salvation has to do with God. I mean, it's His idea. It's His plan. You know, it's what He's accomplished, and it's how He's applying it. So we're just the recipients of this, and we'll get a little bit more into that as we go along. So, now, today, we're going to talk about humankind's redemption. Now, we have kind of a working definition uh, for soteriology, and that's just, the, that's just the academic term for the whole story of the word on salvation. So, it's the study of salvation. And there have been different theologians over the millennia who have had varying perspectives on God's grace to save. So, what we're doing, what we're saying, and what we're going to do is kind of look through what some people have thought correctly or incorrectly, and how the flow and understanding of what salvation is and what grace means has come to be to what we here accept at grace. So, we're going to take a look at salvation as God's accomplishment. We're going to take a look at salvation as how God applied his accomplishment in our lives. And we're also going to take a look at three markers of disciples. I think I may have said this before, but it seems to me as, as I've lived as a Christian now, and especially seeing it in my life, there was times when I was a Christian, and there's times when I was really a follower of Christ. And I think there's a difference. I think there's people who are saved and kind of, mm, just kind of don't grow, have minimal fruit, and then there's people who really truly want to follow Christ. And, and you know, and I think those Christ followers are the ones that we would like to be like. So let's take a look at what we have. Salvation, what has God accomplished? This is the word propitiation. Propitiation means that God is completely satisfied with the punishment suffered by Jesus on humankind's behalf. His holiness and his anger are appeased and his love is expressed through the provision of Christ. So how do we come to this? Well, in John, the apostle says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. That's why he was hanging on the cross. And they brought the sock to him. And when he finished, when he took a little bit of it, he said, it's done, it's finished. 
With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It's kind of interesting to notice that that term is finished is actually not like the completion of something, but actually that the books are balanced. It's actually a, an accounting term. And so what Jesus is saying is that it's been paid. It's been paid in full. So when we see propitiation, we realize that it has been paid in full. Now there's a term in the Old Testament that's very similar. I don't have it down here, but it's the term atonement. The, the word atonement has more of a sense of that our sins have been covered. Okay? So that they're there, but God's kind of covered over them with the blood of these sacrifices and faithful obedience so that he's not going to let that sin stand in the way of him blessing people. But they haven't been propitiated. They haven't been completely atoned for. Because the blood of animals just couldn't do that. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a sacrifice that was God's sacrifice, which was Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's how he gets his name. He's God's sacrifice. So another verse that we have is, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, there's that word again, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's in Romans. So, God foresaw his propitiation coming, and with it coming, he almost saw like it was done, because he knew his son was going to do it, and so he looked at our sins and he kind of passed over them, getting to the place where the sacrifice of Jesus had happened, and he could completely become the one who is just as a sacrifice, and also the just, and as the judge, and as the one who would actually be the one who justifies us. He did it on our behalf. Again, it was what God accomplished for us, not what we accomplished for ourselves. Another verse there is, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So God's Son, God's Lamb, God's sacrifice, actually satisfied the requirements of all the punishment that would do all sin, I believe that. Uh, there's people, by the way, that differ with that, and, and that's okay, they have reasons, there's biblical reasons not to think that. Uh, we'll get into this later, but we'll see that there are some people that see that propitiation is just for the people who were saved. And, and there was no limited, that comes the word, atonement. So we'll talk about that. Don't worry about it yet. Uh, and this is another verse. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, you know, God is saying, no, I'm the initiate. I'm the one who led with my love. And that, that allowed you to go, oh my, there's a God who loves me. And because of that, we're able to respond to his love. He quickens us. Remember, we'll talk about this a little bit later. Remember we talked about Lazarus as a possible picture of election and how God did everything, everything for Lazarus. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Well, there's another word to take a look at, and it's the word redemption. So redemption uh, comes down to basically meaning that it's Christ's death provides the ransom payment to set the believer free from the bondage and the consequence of sin. So we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. Uh, you know, we use the word all the time. It's kind of come down to 
a coupon that would redeem to get something for less money or for free. But basically what it means is that Jesus paid for something that was our debt. And he applied it to us. And now again, because of that, we're not only free from God, who's the holy and righteous judge, who could judge us, but we're also now free from the bondage and slavery to sin. So remember we talked about the, the seven different components, or eight, I think, or I'm sorry, eight components of the scope of salvation. And one of them is being saved from ourselves, being saved from the bondage of sin. We're no longer necessarily bound to sin. When we sin now, it's because we've actually made that choice. We have the ability to hold that back because of Christ in us. Um, so, what are some of the verses that have to do with that? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we have been bought. We've been bought not only out of something, but we now belong to something new. And that's God our Father. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because uh, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hung on the tree. So what happened is that, again, the curse, the, 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 the problem that we had with sin, falling to sin, not being able to overcome sin, not to be able to resist sin, um, is broken. And that, that bondage, that chain is broken. Some of you have heard that you're like the, the chain uh, breakers in your family. You're the first one to come to Christ, and all of a sudden, the chain that's been broken in your family begins to break chains in the rest of your family. That's kind of what it means. People see your freedom. They see who you are in Christ. And, and it's either a delight or a threat, because either they're drawn to it or they're repulsed by it, because in one case, they want that freedom, in another case, they think that the bondage they have is their own freedom to make their own self-determination. So what else? Titus, Paul writes to Titus about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself the people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a big difference, to be eager to do what's good. I mean, there's a lot of people that do good, right? We're people that are eager to do it. We're eager to do it. We'll talk a little bit more about um, the fact that we may be given, we may have the ability to say yes to good things without God, without Jesus Christ. But God reminds us, and remember, we'll look at this verse and we have a look at it, where Isaiah says, even the best things we do, even our most righteous deeds, without God, without faith, are like filthy rags to God. Because it's not about glorifying Him, it's about glorifying ourselves. It's about setting up our own self-righteousness instead of applying His righteousness to us. And it's offensive to God. No one's going to stand before God at, at, at the judgment seat and say, you know what? I deserve to be here. I belong here. It, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Um, so what's another word? Forgiveness. <clears throat> As a result of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that died for us, uh, the believer's sins are totally forgiven. And it says in, in Colossians, Paul wrote, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, 
Our central nature can be cut away. That's what it means to be circumcised. Cut away, okay? There's a part of us that needs to be cut away. It's a central nature. It has to die. And, and, and in fact, Paul says, you need to help it along. He says, I want you to, every day, pick up your cross and crucify that old man, that old woman of you, who used to do things your way. Because it's time to submit your will to God's will and become a follower. To me, that's what a follower means. It means giving up my will for God's will. To go his way instead of my way. And that's one of the basic three things that we'll talk about when we really see a person who's a follower of Jesus Christ, someone that we would call a disciple. Let me just talk a minute about forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness means that uh, uh, you're willing to um, to say a harm or hurt done to me. I, I'm just I'm going to overlook it. Now, and, and I'm not going to hold that against you. Okay. Now, before I go any further, you have to understand that that doesn't mean that what I'm saying is that the hurt done against me is excusable. No, in fact, the only way that you could actually forgive something to somebody is if what they've done to you is inexcusable. It's absolutely wrong, okay? Because if there's an excuse for it, there's no reason for forgiveness. I mean, you just say, you know what? You didn't know what you're doing. Uh, you probably won't do it again. So there's no sense, there's no need for forgiveness. There's an excuse for it. You didn't know. Alright? So that's one thing. Forgiveness doesn't mean that um, the sin or harm done against you is excusable. Second thing that's really important. Whoever's hurt, whoever's been wrong, whoever's going to give the forgiveness is the one who pays the price for the forgiveness. They have to be willing to say emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you hurt me. Uh, it can't ever be taken away. But I've decided that I want to forgive you for this. I want to look past this. I, I want to work towards reconciling if it's possible again. So the person that's hurt, the person that's harmed, actually is the one who pays the price for forgiveness. And every forgiveness costs someone. Third thing just to look at, <clears throat> that's exactly what Jesus did. We harmed him with our sins. Every time we snub somebody, we snub God. Every time we offended somebody, we offended God. Every time we hurt someone, we stole from somebody, we hated someone, we hate, I mean, lusted, whatever it is, we not only harm that person, we harm God. We harm our relationship with him. It's not his plan. It's not the way he operates. It's offensive to him. And to forgive us, he had to pay the price to forgive us. And that's what the cross was. He paid the price to forgive. He paid the price. And as followers of Christ, we abide in Him. We need to be that kind of a person as well. To be able to willing to, to pay the price to forgive. So as you look through relationships, <clears throat> past, present, or future, Think if there's some place that you need to look like Jesus, look like your Heavenly Father, and just forgive and be willing to pay the price. The step that comes after forgiveness is reconciliation. And a lot of forgiveness doesn't get there. And it's just the kind of the way it is. And there, there are reasons for it sometimes. It may be a place where you need to, to protect yourself against someone's 
persistent, persistent sin in power against you. But let's take a look at what reconciliation means here that when God's talking about it. So it says that God provides reconciliation, which is a relational restoration. The relationship is now renewed. It's now like, you know, like, like it, as far as I'm concerned, the sin didn't happen, the harm didn't happen. I was the one that hurt, and, and I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. I'm going to, instead of thinking the worst for you, I'm going to begin thinking the best for you. And hoping that we can bring our relationship not back to just the place where it was, but to a place that's better. Just today, I came back from a meeting with a bunch of, uh, I'm sorry, there was just one guy today. And, and he's working on restoring his marriage. There was hurt. You know, on both sides. And both, he and his wife had to pay the price to forgive one another. But they didn't leave it there. They had been working diligently to put the pieces of their relationship back together. And now, instead of arguing every night, they're praying every night together. Can you imagine that? He just said to me that as a man who's been married almost, you know, 35 years, this is the best his marriage has ever been. And it's like, it's like he was on a boat in a storm with Jesus, and the, and the ship was going down, his marriage was going down, and, and they just cried out to God, and God just calmed the waters. Gave him a place that was safe, gave him a place where they could actually reconcile their relationship. God wants to be reconciled to you. He wants you to be reconciled to him. So, how do we know this? Well, God changes the state of man's alienation to him so that he can offer salvation. That's his first step. For while we were enemies, you get that? We were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we will also absolve in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God is working and making the relationship between you and him so restored. You won't even remember how it used to be before you were his enemy. He erases this, the, the category of enemy from, from the history of your relationship. I think we we'll talk to you about that just a little bit later. Second part, after faith occurs in God's enemy, he has extended God's peace, his shalom. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So he wasn't sitting there going, these no goods, they've, they've repeatedly offended me. He was like, no, I'm going to overlook that. I'm sending my son, I'm going to show them how much I love them, and he's going to bring to them a new way to find a whole relationship with me. Not holding our trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the work of reconciliation. So not only does he reconcile us, okay, this is great. He said, now you're going to be reconciled with too. I pay the price for all the reconciliation, so when you forgive somebody, yeah, you're going to pay a price, but I pay the price, I pay the price for that sin. There's no reason for you to hold back your forgiveness and to move towards reconciliation. So, uh, forgiveness, uh, about the substitutionary death of Jesus on behalf of the, uh, the believer's sin, it's totally forgiven, and then reconciliation, putting that relationship with God back together again in a way that's completely and wonderfully restored. 
Another word, adoption. God has legally brought us into his family. And, and you know, it's, it's amazing. Now, there's only one begotten son. Remember, that word begotten doesn't mean born. It means one of a kind. It means like the only one that's like that. And, and Jesus is the only one who is God's own son, okay? It's the only one, okay? You know, we may be called sons and daughters of God, but we're not sons and daughters because we're one of a kind. We're sons and daughters because we're adopted. He has brought us legally into his family. So in, in that sense, we, according to the Roman law, which this is a you know, reference to, we have all this, the, the, the rights and the, the inheritances of the one son. We have it too. We're, in that sense, equal with him. What he has from the Father, we have from the Father. Uh, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you slaves again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, and by, by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Now a lot of times, instead of saying our Father, I'll, I'll say, uh, Heavenly Daddy, or Heavenly Abba. Sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, I'm an old guy who's nothing more than a child than a God. I'm just a kid. You know, and, and I can just, you know, reach up and grab his hand, just knowing that it's there. You know, and he's waiting for me to put my hand in his. And he's going to take me across the scary street or whatever it is. Um, he predestined us to an adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So we talked about predestination before. I just want to re reinforce that this is about God's predetermination and how he is going to bless people who come to him. In no way, no way means that God's predestined people to go to hell. Okay? The fact is, we're all in that way. And God predetermines, pre-loves, chooses us, elects certain people, people that he just takes and grabs a hold of and transforms. That's us. We don't know who he's elected. We don't know who's chosen. So the best way that we can handle that is for us just to look at everybody and say, you know what, you're elect, you're chosen, and love them. Tell them about the gospel. And watch the Holy Spirit and God's grace work in their hearts. So, we're predestined. Part of that predestination, part of that predetermined plan from God is that we would actually be part of His children. Justification is another word. In God's declaration that the believing sinner is now declared righteous. Um, we watch people that go to court all the time. And they go through a trial, and at the end of the trial, they're either judged and condemned, or they're set free because they've been justified. The case against them has been dropped. There's been not enough proof, not enough evidence. Well, in this case, there's plenty of proof and evidence that we're wrong, that we deserve judgment. But what's happened is that the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary and his resurrection, and the package deal, both had it happen, which was so wonderful in what it's done on our behalf, that actually we are completely justified. There is no more writ of wrong against us. So let me tell you a quick story. Uh, we had a, the one business that I was in, uh, we, we had an office, and people in the ministry would just come by 
and they would come and relax and they'd talk with the partners and you know they basically back up their trucks and dump about things that were hurting them, things that were heavy. And we had one fellow who was the uh, chaplain of Cook County Prisons and he would come over, Steve, and, and he would talk about you know things and, and wonderful things were happening in a prison and he really enjoyed the ministry. But what burdened him was that when he was in the, in the armed services, I think it might be the Air Force in Japan, and he used to do drugs. And he had a girlfriend in Japan. And one night, um, they were both doing drugs. One thing led to another, and somehow, uh, he killed her. And in Japan, uh, because he was an American citizen, an American military person, the maximum sentence he had was seven years. And so he went to prison for seven years. But while he was in prison, a pastor would come and talk with him. And during that time, he gave his life to Christ. And now he used to laugh because then I was, I was sentenced to prison. He goes, now I'm free, and I go to prison you know, to minister. But the thing that broke his heart was that in his past, he still had this horrible, horrible sin. So my partner said to him, he said, what's eternal life to you? And uh, he said, well, you know, it's like living forever. And, you know, I thought about it some more. And he goes, let me tell you, he said, eternal life is Jesus Christ. Okay? So it's not just living forever, path forward. It is also having a whole new past. You now have the life of Christ in you, which means it is perfect going forward and it is perfect going backward. Your past no longer has a murder in it because your past is now Jesus' past. You see how the working of the, the cross has completely eradicated our past, present, and future and replaced it with the past, present, and future of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That is wonderful. That's something we just fall down on our knees and say, wow, wow. So justification. That's what happens. We are, our, our, our histories are so completely rewritten by the love and the blood of Jesus Christ that we no longer have anything to worry about, anything to be concerned about. We are completely, legally declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. Regeneration, another term that we use in academic theology. And it means that God imparts to us a new nature, having a tendency or a disposition towards obeying God. You know, that, that's so regeneration. We were dead. And, and we, we came to a place where, um, you know, the only thing we did, remember, let me roll this back a little bit. We talked about this a little bit. But in our sinful state, we can never say yes to God. Let me just reduce everything to yes and no, okay? In our sinful state without Christ, I could never say yes to God. I could say no to God all the time. Even when I said yes, it was kind of like a no because of the flesh and the things that were going on inside of me because I was not receiving God's righteousness. I was still coming in on my own righteousness, all right? But something happens now when I receive Christ as my Savior. And this is it. We are given the grace to be able to say yes to God. There was no yes and no for anybody except for Adam and Eve. 
Okay? Now, they can say, as long as they can say yes to God, there's always life, there's always blessing, there's always richness, there's always relationship. The moment they said no, which they had an opportunity to do so, all that died. Their spirit died. Their ability to connect with God was gone, it was dead. And then over time, their body would die, and over time, they would live out, and their character would begin unraveling and dying, as we've seen in Cain and Abel. So all of a sudden, there was generation after generation of people, and all they do is say no to God. And the only way that we can say yes to Him is with His grace. Now, we talk about this, but you know that's that's essentially total depravity in that tulip that we discussed. There's just no way that we can say yes to God. And then we come to Jesus, okay, and God dies, and He gives us the grace to be able again to say yes to Him. We can't say yes without that grace, but as soon as we receive that grace, we can say yes to God. And then for the rest of our lives, that grace is constantly working in us so that we can continue to actually opt to say yes to God and His desires and His will and His plan for us. And the thing that's a miracle is that when we do say no, and it's still offensive, that grace of the cross is so powerful that it no longer comes with a death sentence. Because Jesus has paid that price. Now, in my life, I want to be able to look over my shoulder and see a lot more yeses than no's the day before. I want to get to a place where I'm, my life is yes to God. And it's interesting because God says to us, my son's is yes to you and all my promises. So it's like a, a reaction, it's like an echo. God says yes to me and all his promises and I say yes to God. So, uh, regeneration is the ability for us to live a life that says yes to God. We are prone to say yes to God. We are inclined now to say yes to God. And over time, as we become less like we were without Christ, the more like who we are with Christ, yes becomes part of our natural response to anything God wants of us. Sanctification, another good word for us. There's two aspects of sanctification. Sanctification just means to be set apart, to be, to be kind of in a way specially set apart, okay? But it's got two components to it for the believer. We're set apart from, and we're set apart to. You see the differences there? We're set apart from sin. We're set apart from the world. We're no longer part of the world anymore. We now have a new citizenship, okay? But now we're set apart too. We're set apart to the new citizenship in heaven. We're not part of the fallen family of Adam anymore, the first Adam. We're now part of the second Adam's family through adoption. So now, all of a sudden, we set apart to something that's new. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful totality of sanctification, if you want to say it that way. So we're removed from the things that harm us. Paul says, actually, I've been uh, circumcised to the world and circumcised to its lust and cut off. But he's also going to say uh, that he's been sanctified to something been set into something. So something has been taken away, but typical to God, okay, whenever God takes something that's not good for us away, He doesn't leave it there. He 
He always brings to us something good for its place. He always replaces it with something good. I, my partner used to tell me that all the time. He said, God never takes anything away from you that he's not going to put back something that's better. So, you know, that works in a lot of things. It may not work in everything, but boy, it works in a lot of things. So the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an obedient believer is to be sanctified from things that are, are earthly and of the old nation and sanctified towards the new things that are heavenly and of the new nation. And it sets the believer apart to God for holiness and good works. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll stop here for a second. People will tell you, well, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. It would be nice if good was the, was the uh, parameter by which we judge. But we're not. We're not judged on goodness. Anybody can be good. We're judged on holiness. And only God is holy. So that leaves us in the lurch. How do we become holy? Well, we become holy through faith because one of the gifts that we're given is God's righteousness. And that righteousness is reflecting His holiness. We can't His holiness. It's given to us. And now we meet God's standard, which is holy and not good. Okay? Uh, and here's a Bible verse from Corinthians. And that is what some of you were, talking about who they were without Christ. But you were washed, you were sanctified. There's the word. You were justified in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So this work comes in you that begins to can't just completely cleanse you from what you were to set you apart to something new and to actually be justified. I love this, and this is not the only verse that's like this, but if you notice, all the action words are in the past tense. He's not saying, I'm washing you, and I'm sanctifying you, and I'm justifying you. They're all done, done, completely done. Doesn't look like that in my life, necessarily. But what hopefully it looks like is that it's moving towards the completion that God always sees in us. So, we are washed. You know, Peter, all right, I gotta wash me. I'm just washing your feet. Well, then wash all of me. You know, you don't need to. <laughs> you know, we're washed. God's washed you. All right, he's sanctified you. That's nice. We're gonna find out later that you're glorified over you. I know that sounds like a you know, you look at your spouse next to you and go, I don't know if you're going to really glorified. No, you are. In God's eyes, done. Done. Past tense. Um, from Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship. That word poema means masterpiece. Opus. We're God's opuses, his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus. Some people make sculptures out of clay. Some make them out of marble. Some make them out of granite. God is sculpting you out of Jesus. You're a man of Jesus stuff. To do good works. Not another. That makes sense. To do good works. He enables us to do good works. But here, it's what God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Not to work in, to walk in. I love to tell people this. But God has waited for eternity for you, number one, to be called into existence and to be born. And number two, to be called into eternal existence in the life of Jesus Christ and be his kid. And, and, and that means he's been waiting for all eternity for you to get out of scene so you can partner with him. Because he has got a great partnership plan, you and him. No one else has it, 
no one else can do it. Just you and him together. He wants to work with you together forever. I love that idea. And it says, yeah, that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So, regeneration, sanctification from, and sanctification to. Another thing of this amazing thing that God is applying in our lives, He's taking all the things that He's accomplished and now He's going to, he's going to apply them. He's applying them with, uh, in sealing and perseverance. Sealing and perseverance. The believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption so that they will persevere through to the glorification. So you are sealed so that no one could break in. No one could rob you. No one could change what's happened to you. The old Roman seal was a death penalty if you took it off. You have been sealed in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians said, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession, the praise of his glory. And again, in Romans 8, he says, For those God formed, we also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Sell trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing's going to separate you from Christ's love. You are sealed in his love. I believe that uh, there are saved people, and I talked about this, and there are people who are disciples. And they seem to be different. One seems to grow, and one doesn't seem to grow. I believe they're both saved, they both make the same profession. But there's just something different about the people who determine that they're going to be followers and disciples of Christ. Let me just finish this by talking about three markers of a disciple. And uh, give you something that we also think about. First of all, I think disciples follow. Um, by that, Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. He said that to many of his uh, men, Peter, Andrew, um, uh, Levi, who was Matthew. And uh, I think it means taking a new course in our eternal lives, that we must begin to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And and it's not a journey that we take by sight, but it's one we take by faith. But basically it comes down to submitting my will to God's will. I talked about this before. It's basically following Jesus uh, where he'll take you on a journey to surrender your will to God's will and his plan for you. It's a change of direction. It's saying, you know, I'm going to go your way instead of my way. It's following Jesus. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after him and follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So denying self is a personal decision and determination to allow God's grace and truth to transform us to be less like we were without Jesus and more like we are with him. So denying yourself, it's denying your right to yourself and saying, you know what, I have to give myself an opportunity to do it. I'm willing my will to be your will. Take up your cross. It's the only letters that we have when we follow Jesus. And it's, it actually means to follow the prayer of Jesus. 
carries one piece of luggage, and that's the little cross. Our cross is about crucifying our own selfish desires. Instead, we're willing to submit to God's daily plan in our lives and the power of His grace. That cross that we take along with, a lot of people think, oh, it's the pain that I suffer, it's the, you know, the diseases and the hardships and things. And in a sense, it is there. But it's really a tool to, to, to put to death that old person that we used to be and to carry it with us so that we can continue following. And then uh, the cross, uh, Brennan Manning says, the cross is the symbol of our salvation and the pattern of our lives. The symbol of our salvation and the pattern of our lives by Brennan Manning. Another thing is that Jesus calls his disciples to abide. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you can, can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch that dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, there's that word again, over and over again, and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's the Apostle John writing in his Gospel. So we learn that Jesus has become, I'm sorry, we learn Jesus and become more like him by abiding or living in him. So, how do we live in Jesus? Well, first of all, I'm going to talk about this. You know, I can tell you anything about my house. I can tell you where the windows are, where the doors are, I can tell you the colors of paint, where the pictures are, where the television set is, where the bathrooms are. And I can tell you everything about it, not because I study it, but because I live there. I live there. You know, when I was in uh, New York and I was at the crash site of, of uh, American Airlines Flight 587, it just narrowly escaped, uh, missed a yeshiva. And at the yeshiva, where these young boys were taught how to be young Jewish men, um, they, they lived there with their rabbis until the day their rabbi said they were now a grown mesh, a good man, a good Jewish man. And then they were allowed to go. How did they learn? Well, they learned by study. But they learned by living with their rabbi. We need to learn with our rabbi who happens to be Jesus. How do we do that? We let the word of God abide in us because we abide in it. We live in his word. That's one way. The second way we can learn to abide in Jesus is to hang out with people who are abiding in Jesus. See people who are just like, wow, oh, you know, their life is so cool. Everything about them seems more like Jesus than most people. And find out what it is about them that makes them that way. And learn to abide the way they learn to abide. So it's not simply knowing something. It's about knowing that manifests itself through obedient becoming a being and a doing. So that's the second marker of a disciple is abiding. And what's the third? The third is in that passage that we just read. People who are really followers of Christ, who are really disciples, they bear much fruit. Much fruit. I mean, that scares me because I'm like, well, I've got some fruit in my life. I don't know how much is much. I mean, you know, it's 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 like we bear much fruit. So Jesus said. Uh, as it was recorded by John, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Another place, uh, it says that um, we love God and 
strong love for God by bearing much fruit. So those who follow and abide in their lives will bear much fruit. Uh, it, it speaks to an abundance of, of, of spiritual fruitfulness in our life. I had a, a mentor, a disciple, a woman, an old 90-year-old lady, she used to disciple me. And she used to say, Mr. Correa, you need to yield to yield. I'm like, yield to yield? What's who yields? She goes, yes, you need to yield your life to Christ so that you can yield things in Christ. What's the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit at heart? We were always all about the gifts, you know? But the reality is the one thing that we haven't given that we need to really exemplify, manifest in our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and discipline. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit looks like. And if He's flooding our life, our life should be flooded with those same things. And it's also the utilization of your spiritual giftedness. It's the doing part. So the the, the fruit part is the being part, and the gift part is the doing part. That's the obedience that happens when we know about God and we learn to abide in Him. So the, the, the formula I have over here, if there's a formula that I can say that, is following plus abiding is just going to equal much fruit. It's going to happen. You know, you'll get a grapevine that sits there and goes, oh, we've got to squeeze out some grapes here. You know, how do we do that? No. The fruit happens all by itself because it's plugged into the vine. And when we're plugged into the vine, I think we're going to bear the fruit that God planted for us to bear. It's as simple as that. And whatever amount that is, I think it's going to be much. Because it's going to be much more than we ever would have done without it. Because without it, there is no fruit at all. No fruit whatsoever. So, before we finish this, three questions. How's your following going? How's your body going? And how, what does your fruit look like? All right, well, thanks so much. I'm sorry I wasn't here to do this with you. Dan, come on up. Now that I've given plenty of stuff for people to be confused about, you can answer all the questions and solve everything. God bless you, and I'll see you next week. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.